0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome,
1: welcome, welcome. Welcome Welcome to The Roy Green Show Podcast.
2: Welcome to The Roy Green Show Podcast. It's Jody Vance here filling in for Roy. Today, racism in our healthcare system. Double feature with global reporter Brittany Enriquez, as well as Dr. Pamela Roach, a Métis doctor from the University of Calgary. Donald Trump, taken to a military hospital as a precaution after positive COVID tests and COVID updates. Uh, Second wave and vaccine developments with Dr. Peter Hotez, as well as a former white supremacist. Brad Galloway joins us to talk about Donald Trump's refusal to disavow extremist groups, the, the Proud Boys being one of them. It's all coming up on the Roy Green Show podcast. That audio is from a Facebook post made by Joyce Eshequan. She is the 37-year-old Indigenous woman who'd gone to hospital with stomach pain just earlier this week. Her stomach hurt. And the translation from that audio will disgust you. It is a nurse and an orderly, and the translation is, quote, what do you think your children would think seeing you like this? Think about them a little. And then another says, she's only good for sex and we're paying for this, end quote. Yes, the nurse has been fired, but is that enough? Many would say absolutely not. The call to clean up a healthcare system riddled with racism is growing louder by the hour, and there's a major protest taking place in Montreal. And we take you there now and connect with Global News reporter Brittany Enriquez. Brittany, uh, nice to speak with you. Can you describe the scene for us?
3: Yes, hi. Uh, over a 1,000 people are gathered here today asking for justice for Joyce Shaquan. Uh People are angry. People are frustrated and sad. Uh, there are so many people filling up the streets with signs and pictures of Joyce. Um, everyone is mourning and sad, and they really want to see change.
2: And now, I understand the rally began with some speeches. What were the messages like there, Brittany?
3: So people are demanding action. Um, They say this, unfortunately, is an event that was taped live, but this is not an isolated case. They're saying that this has happened multiple times before, but now people get to see it. They say that this is systemic racism that killed Joyce. Um, Indigenous leaders are asking the government to step up and accept accountability. They say, you know. Um, This happens all the time and they want change. They're fed up. They're sick of racism in Quebec and across Canada. And um, they hope to see change eventually.
2: We see all too many stories like this coast to coast. This is not a Quebec problem. This is a Canada problem. There's no question about that. Now, uh, Brittany, the protest uh, comes just a day after we heard from Joyce's husband.
3: Yeah, Joyce's husband, Kahul Dubé, spoke for the first time yesterday and he was pretty inconsolable. Um, He was showed in tears mourning the death of his wife, Joyce. Um, He was saying how now his seven kids will no longer get to see their mother ever again. Um, He was absolutely appalled by what he heard in the video and uh, he really just wants to see justice for the love of of his life
2: joining us now is a a passionate anti-racism advocate, assistant professor at the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health Sciences at the University of Calgary. We're joined by Dr. Pamela Roach. Thanks for being with us, Doctor. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So we were chatting uh, with our global news reporter, uh, Brittany Enriquez, uh, before the break uh, at the protest in Montreal, speaking about sort of the reactions in Quebec and and how the nurse involved, uh, one of the nurses anyway, has since been fired um, after that Facebook recording that uh, Joyce Eshaquan posted before she died in in that hospital. Uh, but, you know, coast to coast, we hear stories more and more about the systemic racism against Indigenous peoples in in our country. Uh, Like the Price is Right game that was um, a spotlit in BC in our healthcare system uh, out here on the West Coast, uh, where it was a game, an emergency, to guess the blood alcohol level of Indigenous people when they came through the doors of emergency. Just absolutely atrocious. Uh, The systemic nature of racism in general in our healthcare system, and I was hoping that you could you could speak to that a little bit and inform and educate uh, all of us a bit on, on what how deep this actually goes.
4: Yeah, definitely. And I think I'd like to start um, just by offering my my sympathies to Joyce Eschikan's family. Um, just seeing some of the, the coverage of what her her partner and her her children um, are saying right now, and and the tragedy that we're all watching. Um, And I think what one of the first things you said about going to the hospital and nobody expecting this kind of treatment—we actually know that people, Indigenous people in Canada, do expect this treatment, um, and that's part of the reason why sometimes um, Indigenous people, particularly First Nations individuals, will avoid seeking treatment or seeking help because. We know that there, there's a real possibility of racism and there's a real possibility of harm. And I think when we think about systemic racism, we hear it a lot in the media lately. We, we've been hearing it a lot since the death, since the murder of George Floyd. Um, and when we think about the way our systems are structured, it's not just a case of lots and lots of interpersonal racism, but it's actually if you took out all of those instances, our systems are still set up to structurally advantage and disadvantage People largely based on race or, or ethnicity. And there's um, a really great scholar named Dr. Kamara Jones, and she frames it as, as some different levels of racism. And there is that interpersonal racism, and it's really important to address that. But until we address this systemic or institutionalized racism where our structures are so ingrained and so, so deeply rooted to disadvantage some people. Um, that will actually never, will never end racism that people experience. So it's, it's quite, um, apparent when we see, there's a lot of evidence, and, and I think we know that this evidence is out there that when Indigenous individuals go to the emergency department, um, they do actually receive lower triage acuity scores. So they're seen later. Um, they're, they, they're left for longer wait times in the, in the waiting room. Um, they experience lower trust in their relationships with healthcare providers. Um, we know that. We know that they are less likely, often, to receive pain relief or opioids um, because of stigmatized views of healthcare providers that they may be what what is termed drug seeking um, as opposed to actually needing needing valid treatment. So we, as a result, the Canadian Institute of Health um, Information actually has evidence that shows that Indigenous people living in Canada actually experience between two to five times higher mortality rates for conditions that could be treated. So conditions where other non-Indigenous Canadians um, would be more frequently treated successfully in hospital.
2: You know, Doctor, I have to check my white privilege in asking this question because I know, given what you just stated to me, I'm so far away from from that position of understanding being able to even process all of what you just said—the longer wait times, the lack of care, the 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 triage—you uh, know—scores that would be given on on how or how how treatment happens, or even the fact that an Indigenous person would not go to the hospital because they know they would be met with racism—how mm-hmm. do we even begin to fix the depth of how broken our healthcare system is? Given what you just said, where who who's missing? Yeah. Who's dropping the ball here? Where does it begin? How do we change this? And that's a
4: really, that's a, that's a, that's the question. And I think that's, um, it's a huge question. And I think the first thing is that we've seen talk about an inquiry into, into Joyce's death. And I think, you know, there was a statement released by the Indigenous Physicians Association of Canada yesterday, um, reiterating, I think what everybody is feeling, that we we have the inquiry, we have the information. We yeah. know this. we don't need another inquiry. What we need is action. And that yes. action includes things like, you know that training on interpersonal racism so anti-racism training bystander training implicit bias training those are all important to address but ultimately we really need to think systematically and when we think like that it goes back to increasing safety um, in our Mm -hmm. healthcare system Um, and number one by naming it right we need to name it we need our leaders to not say this was a racist incident but there's no systemic racism. We need them to say there is systemic racism. And until we name it, we can't address it. And so we need to name it. And then we need to build in accountability. And that accountability needs to come from the hospitals, from the system, from the regulation enforcing bodies, um, the way we teach. So I, I work within the medical school and um, work with some amazing colleagues uh to help improve and enhance health equity by by improving our Indigenous health and our anti-racism education. And that includes, you know, making it safer, making these environments safer so we can train more Indigenous physicians and nurses mm-hmm. and healthcare aides um, to make those educational. Environments better, um, improve the safety that way, but then also improve the way we're teaching non Indigenous healthcare providers to actually be able to speak up, to see systems that are inequitable and to address them. And if we want to go really, really what we call upstream with that, then we're also thinking about the way that education is disproportionately funded for Indigenous youth as well. So making sure that there's adequate funding Space. for education yeah. for Indigenous youth so they can also access these kinds of programs
2: it for me one of the things that came to mind in in learning of the prices right story in British Columbia Mm -hmm. because it was a very big story here and then it it, you know we were in an extraordinarily um, noisy news cycle the headline of today is is gone all too quickly Mm -hmm. because the, the the piece that really came into play that was very poignant was how those who witnessed This systemic racism felt they could not step forward or sometimes and oftentimes found themselves either uh, punished for doing so or worse, even out of a job, depending on what their level might be, because they were going against the more powerful people in place at the healthcare facility, wherever that might be, how is it that this, uh, Dr. Roche? How is it that this is being handed down, sort of generationally, within our healthcare system? I mean, how does this continue to be such a systemic issue without it being uh, flagged and acknowledged, and then and and changing and evolving? I mean, it's 2020.
4: Yeah, and uh, to be honest, I think that's where this these when we talk about accountability, it's being able to mm-hmm. have state structures. And so, the University of Manitoba released a um, statement of, uh, to interrupt racism in all its forms recently for the medical school there, um, mm-hmm. and it's it's sort of there a no wrong door reporting policy. And that was one of the the pieces of that of that policy that I really liked. And that you report. When you, when you witness racism or when you experience it, you report it to whoever is safest because sometimes our reporting structures aren't safe. So if we're expected to report something. Um, to the head of the the site, the site director for a hospital, for example. But maybe you don't feel safe doing that or maybe you're expected to report to the CEO and you don't feel safe doing that. So you need a reporting structure and we need, there needs to be action on the back of it. And I think often that's what's lacking is we have people who are expected to report their experiences, share their trauma, um, and then ultimately nothing gets done and there's no repercussions. And there's all the calls now that I think the nurse and the orderly um, have been fired But there's still more calls that there needs to be, there needs to be more action taken, um, because ultimately, you know, this was an appalling case of mistreatment and of racism that ended in the death, um, of, of someone who was seeking help. And there needs to be further action on that. So I think until our society really really realizes and I know we hear this a lot and and sometimes it feels like this big metaphor that doesn't mean anything but when we talk about anti-racism or systemic racism or decolonization it's really about moving away and understanding that these structures that we live within in Canada are a result of of colonization and the way our country was structured and that we recognize that th- that's inequitable, and that's actually very, very harmful. Um, so we need to to think of of different ways to improve safety for everybody,
2: safety for everybody, and consequences for those who turn a blind eye to mm-hmm. uh, atrocities that, uh, such as what uh, was suffered by Joyce uh, Eshaquan. and and in in just learning more and and listening and 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 acknowledging um, our privilege or my privilege in this story and and seeing how, if it were me, as a white woman, as a born and raised Canadian white woman, if I had been Joyce, there would be no question that a criminal investigation would be opened immediately. The fact that there needs to be a push to have one opened here is is outrageous, and and that speaks to the level of uh, passive nature uh, in what can this could be constituted as a hate crime. This isn't just someone suffering racism. Like, the the air quotes surrounding uh, this story are shocking, Pam.
4: Absolutely, absolutely. And I saw footage this morning of Joyce's son, I think her 16-year-old son, kneeling in front of Mark Miller and Carolyn um, Bennett, asking for, for charges, asking for a criminal investigation, begging on his knee. Um, and I think that's, you, you hit it exactly right, that if this had happened to a non-Indigenous person, it, it would be all over the news. People would be marching in the streets, and there would have been a criminal a criminal investigation opened immediately.
2: I should note, uh, Dr. Pamela Roach is the Assistant Professor of Department of Family Medicine and Com- Community Health Services at the University of Calgary. And uh, this is so personal in nature for many of us. My significant other is a Métis man. And so half of my family is Métis. And, and I, I never, ever think that there might be a, a stigma in, associated with him needing emergency medical care. What should the punishment be when that any door uh, policy is utilized and somebody is reported, no matter what their level of training, no matter what their pay grade might be, what should happen if it can be confirmed that, that racism is taking place in our healthcare system, what will move the meter?
4: Well, that's a, re- that's a really difficult question. And I think um, in cases like this, I think ultimately there, it, it needs to be systemic. It needs to be on a systems level where the justice system also needs to be um, more equitable and more safe. And it, mm-hmm. we need to address the structural racism there. Um, I think yes. for when we think of the, the spectrum of different types of racism that people experience, Um, there needs to be, I think, action. Often, sometimes, you know, we report things, we report experiences of racism, um, and somebody will say, well, you know, I'm not really sure. Did they mean it? Mm -hmm. Do you think maybe you're being oversensitive? Um, But taking a really, almost a a restorative justice approach to many cases where if we're working within a system, um, and if it's, you know, peer-to-peer, aggression that we're witnessing, there's ways to, to almost remediate that. Um, but I think the answer to that question really depends on, on what's happened, because I think in cases like this, we really need we need something that, that shows that there's a commitment to the safety of Indigenous people um, in our healthcare system. And I worry that, that firing the people involved in the video creates a sense of action, but actually doesn't work to solve the problem
2: which really doesn't change anything in the long term. Uh, Dr. Roach, thank you for taking some time on this incredibly important and sensitive topic. We appreciate your perspective so very much. Thank you. Thanks for doing this. Okay, we're going to pause here momentarily and then uh, tee up what is another busy hour ahead. We'll return on The Roy Green Show across coast to coast, the Chorus Radio Network. the U.S. President Donald Trump in hospital with COVID-19. The timeline on this, the update on what his doctors are saying, what they are retracting. Let's get to the meat of this with Global News Bureau, uh, Washington, D.C. reporter and producer Reggie Cicchini joins us on the line. Thank you so much for doing this, Reggie. Happy Saturday. Oh, my goodness. There is so much to cover off with regard to what we've seen unfold in the United States. Take us on a little bit of a tour of the timeline for those just catching up here on uh, Donald Trump's test positive for COVID-19 and what landed him in hospital.
0: Well, I mean, it might be difficult to do. Uh, and that's because the timeline is coming under question uh, questioning following uh, a news conference from the physicians that are treating the president at the hospital outside of Washington, D.C., today. Uh, the very basics of it, President Trump tweeted on Friday morning that he had uh, had a positive test come back for COVID-19. Today, outside of Walter Reed Medical Center, doctors, uh, the doctor who's treating the president, his physician, said that this is now hour 72 of diagnosis, then just issued a retraction about 15 minutes ago, saying he didn't mean to say hour 72, he meant to say day three, uh making things more confusing. Because when you put all of this to the side, President Trump was traveling to New Jersey on Thursday night, knowing full well that he potentially was positive for COVID-19. And the White House is in a massive effort to try and clean things up right now
2: right cue the conspiracy theories as well with those just those simple little pieces of the puzzle already there are people now posting on social media the idea that how long has he known for now we're getting the likes of kellyanne conway and chris christie governor chris christie coming out and saying they've tested positive for COVID 19. Uh, this is creating what we are sort of normalizing in this presidency to some degree it's creating so much chaos so much noise
0: it is creating chaos. It is creating noise. It's creating a public relations crisis for a presidency uh, and for a campaign that has actively worked to downplay the severity of coronavirus. This is going to be difficult now for the president to try and convey a message to his base that he has repeatedly told over and over that COVID-19 is uh, nearing its end, that it will be gone soon, that the U.S. is rounding the corner on it. Uh, this 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 is problematic for them. But this, the more larger and bigger problem that the kind of federal government is going to have to deal with right now is contact tracing. And like you said, Chris Christie is positive. Kellyanne Conway is positive. There were two senators that came out today and said that they are positive. And not all of them were at the exact same events. meaning that there is some patient zero out there that is potentially spreading this throughout Washington. There are other people that are spreading this uh, throughout events that these uh, that these Republicans uh, have been at. Uh, and it is making the effort to try and contact trace back much more difficult.
2: It is really quite fascinating, fascinating as well to watch uh, the numbers of uh, politicians testing positive right now. Certainly, uh, heavily weighted on the Republican side, and we we know from sort of the the tone from the Republican Party and those who are uh, in support of Donald Trump and his sort of push back on the wearing of masks and sort of saying that this is all just gonna gonna be uh, over before we know it. And yet here is US President Donald Trump on Twitter just within the last 35 minutes or so, uh, now calling it the plague.
0: Calling it the plague, again, uh, trying to uh, downplay the severity of it. Uh, not giving the full details uh, of what's actually going on with him. I mean, look, the president is in hospital right now. That is that is that is huge. The fact that the huge. president was in hospital for more than 12 hours before anybody came out to actually speak about the condition of the president is also problematic here uh, for when it comes to communicating things to the American public. So when you have a president who downplays the virus, you now have him in hospital because of the virus, the condition of the president is being downplayed or at least spun To be something different than it is right now this is a problem for the republican party this is a problem for the president and it is a problem for the united states image right now on a global spectrum because not only does the does the president of the united states come off questionable here it puts national security at risk as well making it seem like things simply don't understand how to be run here
2: it is really quite something to, uh, to witness when we consider the fact that, Reggie, we are 30 days, we're one month today away from the U.S. election that feels like we have had a run up for for five years.
0: Yeah, we're 30 days away from it right now. Uh, and again, the president is going to be sidelined from being able to take place in any kind of campaign event. He was supposed to be in Wisconsin last night and today. Uh, that's probably a good thing that he's not there. Wisconsin is now uh, the epicenter of the epidemic uh, in the United States right now. This could have potentially posed problems uh, by putting such a large number of people together for one of President Trump's rallies. Uh, side note, we do know that the MAGA rallies are going to continue next week. Vice President Mike Pence will be taking place uh, at, in, uh, at a MAGA rally in Arizona next week. But with an election so close and the president not able to get out onto the campaign trail, not able to meet and greet himself with supporters in a time, at a time when he is falling behind Joe Biden in almost every single national poll and internal GOP polls, this is a potentially disastrous moment for a campaign that is already struggling.
2: Which also kicks the conspiracy theorists into high gear, saying this is Trump's way of sort of getting out. He's just putting this all on, uh, which just takes it all to the next level when you consider that people might even uh, entertain for a moment that someone would go, or that uh, a a powerful country, that of the United States, that a government would uh, put together or orchestrate theater that would uh, upend uh, global comfort around uh, stability at, in in a moment such as this in a global pandemic so everybody who has that conspiracy theory rhetoric and is retweeting and sharing and doing that online give yourself a pause give yourself a moment here and let's let's uh, out of an abundance of caution that is what is being said from uh, the us President Donald Trump uh trump's administration with regard to why he is in a military hospital i think it's it's fascinating to watch people wish him ill and those on the other side of the coin saying hold on this is humanity uh the noise around this really is something reggie and the reason why i bring this up specifically is that the biden campaign made a statement saying that they were removing all attack ads all negative ads surrounding uh Donald Trump. And almost at the same moment where those, where that announcement was made and those ads were removed, an attack came out from the Trump campaign that, that might have been pre-planned uh, against uh, the Joe Biden camp. Can you explain that a little bit?
0: Yeah, and if I can, just really quickly to go back to your initial comment there about conspiracy, uh, that also needs to be put to rest because that's for people that don't actually follow the president. President Trump would never allow himself to come across as weak and put himself in a position on purpose to make it look like right. he is unable to run the government. That's just simply not the M.O., uh, of Donald Trump. This move that Joe Biden has done with his campaign to remove their negative ads against Donald Trump, it's the ability for the Biden campaign to kind of uh, extend and further show that empathetic tone that they've been able to show for the last couple of months now, uh, especially when it comes to the COVID-19 crisis. Joe Biden was ridiculed for, quote unquote, hiding in his basement uh, and for holding small little get togethers uh, and for wearing his mask. Yet none of his campaign staff, nobody in and around him, has contracted COVID-19. Uh, but they're trying to show that, look, this is a severe virus. This is a virus that can impact anybody, including the president of the United States. So they did decide to take down those attack ads. Whether or not that was a pre-scheduled, uh, you know, kind of campaign message that came from the Trump campaign just, you know, about an hour later, uh, you know, that hasn't been clarified yet. But it still goes to show that in the middle of all of this right now, there is still very much a stark difference in how these two men are, are, are campaigning.
2: It needs to be noted here, Reggie, 7.36 million total cases in the United States confirm positive 209,000 deaths from COVID-19. There is no hoax here. There is no conspiracy around whether or not this virus is uh, one that we all must be paying attention to, washing our hands, wearing our masks, keeping physical distance uh, to every person. Uh, No matter what your political stripe is, please have that in mind. Um, Now, politically speaking, moving forward, how does this work? Obviously, as a test case positive, the president would now have to at least at minimum be 14 days quarantined. Uh, How do you campaign? Uh, Or can you? He doesn't have the power to postpone or or change the election date, right?
0: He doesn't have that power. That's vested solely with the Congress, and the Congress uh, is likely, especially in a Democratic-controlled House, is not going to pass any kind of laws to extend this outwards, considering Nancy Pelosi earlier this week essentially kind of said you you so to the president uh, in his treatment of COVID-19 uh, over the last year. President Trump's campaign has said that there will be virtual events held. They will uh, suspend some of their events. Mike Pence will become a more visible force on the campaign trail over uh, the next week or so. But you're right about the president. He is going to find himself in isolation until he's able to get that third negative test that confirms that he no longer has the virus. Uh, We don't know, you know, if he'll actually pay attention to that. We know that he oftentimes tries to create his own rules and walk his own path. But again, this is problematic for a president who is trailing in polls, not only in the states that he needs to win, like Minnesota and Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. There are very clear indications right now that reliably red states in the South, like South Carolina and Florida, are also starting to veer away from Donald Trump and veer more towards Joe Biden, which could, A, lead to just a a blowout of the Electoral College on election night, but B actively show that there is a pull away from what has now become the Republican Party of Donald Trump.
2: Professor Peter J. Hotez. He is the Dean for the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine and co-director, Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development in Houston, Texas, among many other titles. He is a touchstone when it comes to keeping us updated and educated on all things COVID-19, and we're very glad to be able to grab just just a couple of minutes of the professor's time on this Saturday. Thank you for being with us.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me. How are you?
2: I'm doing really well. I'm honestly stressed out about some of the numbers being reported here in Canada and some of our major city centres. But before we get into the Canadian COVID situation, can, can we just pick your brain and get your thoughts on what is happening with uh, U.S. President Donald Trump right now?
1: Well, the uh, White House physicians had a press briefing, but it was a little bit uh, confusing with timelines and statement states. I'm not sure it really added a lot of uh, clarity. Um, but it sounds as though the president is doing better. He received uh, a couple of experimental uh, therapies, including a monoclonal antibody cocktail from Regeneron through an expanded access program of the FDA and also um, a Remdesivir, an experimental drug. And it sounds as though he's getting better. Of course, the problem is you don't really know. Did you, was he going to get better, and in, in spite of the treatments, or because of the treatments? That's because it's not a, a controlled trial. So um, let's, we're hoping for the best and uh, wish him and his family well. So he and his family well. So let's see how things go. Um, the next few days will be telling uh, if if it's like other cases of COVID.
2: Right. Nobody can really predict what's next for the president, because if you could predict that, you could predict for millions of people around the globe, which is uh, impossible at this point in the pandemic. We've learned since March. Can you give us a bit of an update, Professor, on where you see COVID globally and what your forecast is? You you on Twitter are such a a, um, a great resource of information and you each week you begin with what your talking points are for the week coming up. What are your talking points for this week? Well, other
1: than... Commenting on the president and the president's care and what we might expect Uh, looking at in the U.S., we're starting to see uh, numbers begin to go up, uh, especially up in the northern Midwest, uh, up in Wisconsin, the Dakotas. uh, That worries me. And then in some of the other Midwest states, Missouri, uh, uh, Oklahoma, even maybe even Texas. And so the big question is, is this begin the beginning of our next big fall uh, fall surge that many of us have been expecting? So that's a big unknown. And uh, so that, that worries me. And, and it looks as though if it's happening, it's, it's happening in the northern part of the country first, which is not unexpected.
2: You've mentioned that the virus perhaps does better in colder climates and obviously people are heading indoors and spending more time in uh, situations and scenarios that are higher risk.
1: Yeah there's a bunch of unknowns here. Um, The thinking is that as people climb indoors uh, in the colder months there'll be more transmission but there's one or two papers out there that suggest that that mortality rates also go up in the colder weather. Mm-hmm. And why that is, whether it's closer contact indoors and getting a higher inoculum, or some say the cold itself, uh, helps promote virus, virus survival. And so we'll see if that is, turns out to be the case, because we had a very high mortality rate in New York and a much lower one in the southern states. And I always assumed it's because we were learning how to take care of uh, intensive care unit patients better as the epidemic progressed. But maybe there is that cold piece to the m- mortality we'll have to see.
2: Hmm. I want our listeners to know how to follow you at Peter Hotez, H-O-T-E-Z on Twitter, um, because you get little nuggets of information. And I can't tell you how many times I've reiterated your advice when it comes to vaccines. I want to get an update from you on vaccine development, but you also gave some thoughts on when any number of vaccines might come available that we should very much consider having those vaccines and why. Well, I think
1: right now we'll get some answers as we move uh, further into the year. Towards the end of the year, we'll have some data on phase three clinical trials to see if any of the three Operation Warp Speed in the U.S. vaccines that are in phase three trials are safe and actually work. We don't really know that yet. Everyone's assuming they're all going to work, but I don't think we really know that yet at all. And then uh, if one or more of those works, then over time next year, we'll start releasing those vaccines to the public.
2: And they might work in different ways, I understand i 'm gleaning this all from things that I have read that you have written or conversations that you have had that I've listened to.
1: Well, I think they all work by uh, creating virus neutralizing antibodies, antibodies that target the spike protein of the virus as well as key cell responses and But they all work through different mechanisms to do that and that's one of the innovative aspects of the program is using different technologies. To get to the same answer of inducing virus neutralizing antibodies with the hope that by having so many different technologies you get more shots on goal and therefore increase the likelihood that you'll have a successful outcome with the vaccines. Um, Some have criticized it by saying we we went too heavy on the innovation not enough old school vaccines and we're also doing that in our group uh, we're scaling up production of a very traditional recombinant protein vaccine made uh, similar to the hepatitis B vaccine that's now being scaled in India. So with a company known as Biological E, they're one of the big pharma companies in India. So we're pretty excited about that as well. Good. And so the idea is between the Operation Warp Speed vaccines and some of the more traditional vaccines that we'll be able to have enough to vaccinate the world. And I'm also really worried about the equity issue.
2: Mm-hmm. And where to start? How does it start? There's some historical uh, issues with when looking to the most vulnerable to uh, inoculate first, that group of society can oftentimes turn around and say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, we're not your test animal. So there's that sort of perspective on this as well.
1: Yeah, remember we also have a pretty aggressive anti-vaccine lobby that mm-hmm. uh, that even targets uh, certain minority groups, which is really egregious. But uh, that's uh, some of the tactics that they've been doing. Um, so we've got some surveys now showing that a significant percentage of Americans will refuse COVID nineteen vaccines even if they're made available, and um, uh, and that really gives me worry. I think part of the Part of this is self inflicted because, as I think the Operational Work Speed program is a good program in terms of scientific rigor and integrity of the trials, but there was never a commensurate program with, uh, or a program that was commensurate in terms of communication. Mm. So it was left to the pharma companies to communicate, get the word out, and they've made a lot of missteps. So I hope that we can fix that.
2: And the anti-vax community, as you well know, uh, loves to hate the pharma community. And if the message is mixed, then that just proves the anti-vaxxer point, which is terrifying. When it comes to the flu shot, Professor, it is an absolute must-get, yes?
1: Yes, I'm all in on the flu vaccine. I've gotten mine and make sure all my family gets it. Uh, uh, risk is Risk is close to zero and the benefit is it can save your life and at least reduce severity of illness and prevent you from going to the hospital or the icu so get your flu vaccine uh because the uh, you know the worry is we could have a double epidemic uh, this fall and summer of both flu and COVID 19 or even a triple epidemic in which you have um uh, measles coming back so all of these are a real possibility
2: and that brings us to the point that I want to make at the end of this, which has been something that Professor Hotez has been saying for years and years. Please have your children properly vaccinated to protect them from the diseases that we have eradicated or have certainly created herd immunity through vaccine programs.
5: What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a White's name. White supremacists and white supremacists. White supremacists and like white
2: Stand back and stand by, but I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left. Donald Trump, the U.S. president, speaking there at the presidential debate earlier this week that set off celebration bells for some extremist groups, alarm bells for many others of us, uh, for folks who are monitoring those groups as well, not just in the United States. We are not immune here in Canada And although the president did backtrack those statements later on this week, uh, experts are saying that the damage was done. And our next guest is an expert at this. Uh, Brad was a fixture in the North American right wing extremist movement for 13 years, was the president of a racist skinhead gang for five of those years. But now he works to fight against violent extremism. Uh, Brad Galloway currently works at the Center on Hate, Bias and Extremism. And as a case manager with uh, Life After Hate, uh, he joins us now to uh, to talk about what we have heard and how it might impact us here in Canada with regard to uh, racist extremists. Brad Galloway, thank you for being with us.
5: Yeah, thanks a lot for having me in.
2: First and foremost, did you watch the debate live? Did you hear that that clip live?
5: Absolutely. Yes, I was uh, I was tuned into that.
2: Okay. So, what were your thoughts immediately when you heard it?
5: Um, you know, uh, I guess coming, first of all, from my experience within these movements and, and also now with my experience, uh, you know, working around these, uh, you know, researching these types of groups, I, my, immediate, uh, my immediate reaction was that this, um, this was going to be a call to action for these right-wing extremist groups internationally.
2: So the reaction within the group would have been one of, of feeling as though the, the, they had been acknowledged, anointed even. By the president
5: mm-hmm. yeah you don't often hear um, you know leaders of, of countries uh, sort of giving a giving a personal shout out to these types of extremist groups
2: it felt like an extraordinarily loud dog whistle uh, from from my perspective from my living room watching this live in the moment and then the 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 honest the, the dodging of of when being asked point blank numerous times, it took days until he appeared on Fox News with Sean Hannity and wanted to make it a thing there where he walked it back. Certainly somewhere, someone inside the administration said, you have to denounce this. Um, what d- Does that undo anything or has the did he deputize uh, those like the Proud Boys and those who are in Canada um, and they would not have heard or cared what he said on Hannity?
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think first of all, it's, it's, in, it's important to, uh, to recognize that, that, you know, the founder of this, uh, group, uh, is from, is from Canada, um, and, uh, is sort of a, a transplant in the United States. And yeah, this, um, you know, this was a direct, uh, you know, shout out to, um, to, the, to this group. And I think they, yeah, you know, when, when they're told to, you know, to stand by, I think this sort of, uh, this this sort of thing is 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 very challenging to deal with and 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 yes I think uh, giving a, denouncing this three days later I think that um, my personal opinion is that you know the, the ship has sort of sailed on on that one that should have been done right on right on the spot.
2: So Brad, can you give us a little bit of a background on the Proud Boys? So you say that, you know they're from Canada and, and expanded into the United States. Many Canadians would not know that story.
5: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean it's it's often considered by some experts as a Canadian import uh, and and uh, you know there's there's a lot of different other other uh, folks it's sort of, these um, the border in itself doesn't mean a lot to these types of groups is sort of what I'm getting at here it's it's right. uh, um, you know it's transnational in the sense of you know they these people are linking up online and, and then um, and that that's sort of that's sort of the point is that you know they have it's the proud boys in itself is more of like a, a gang sort of structure than, than, um, what, what you'd see in some other, like, uh, your typical white supremacist, uh, group. Um, it's, it's, uh, often their narratives are surrounded about men's rights and, and anti-Islam, that kind of thing. Um, more like single issue to whatever's going on out there. Um, but it's, um, you know, you see various things. I mean, recently we've seen in, across the U.S. the different violence associated with these groups. Um, I wouldn't necessarily call them a white supremacist group. I would definitely call them a violent extremist group, though, um, because they they tend they tend to sort of go along. Like there could be white supremacists in their group, but um, they 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 tend to have different ideolo- ideological sort of standpoints uh, based on their geographic locations.
2: So. so, what was what was the impetus of the Proud Boys in Canada? What what was the spark? What was the what was the the, the mandate, I guess, for for starting it?
5: Well, often you you see the different things that are going on. I mean, uh, you, you probably saw in the news about the the different statues that were being allegedly taken down or whatever. They've you see Proud Boys at these these types of protests. You see them at um, you know anti-Islam protests, things like that, and also um, uh, they they often are protesting uh feminism and different things like that uh as well and and they're you know it's, it's they they've they've had some charismatic leaders that have been you know having podcasts uh gavin mckinnis for for instance mm. um you know a, a talking about these different things and and also trying to incite violence right so that's yeah. um that's that's the point at the end of the day for for this type of group the end of the, at the end of the day the the violence is the
2: central theme. And with that violence comes the power. Because what I'm hearing from you is there there isn't one goal. It isn't the you know the you know the skin the skinhead mantra or the KKK mantra or the. It's not just all about racism. This sounds to me it's about uh, misogynistic male dominance mm-hmm. at the root.
5: Yeah, I think I think that's that's well behind it. I, I think that's um, that's an accurate statement. I think that that mm-hmm. um, I mean, there's been there's been numerous incidents related to the Proud Boys uh, internationally. Uh, I think researchers is, are, are saying uh, uh, somewhere around t- uh, 280 incidents or something like this um, uh, related to uh, uh, the Proud Boys. So, um, I mean, this in is, Canada? Uh, no, uh, internationally. So internationally, so, okay this and this is what the connection is to um you know when I say this is a transnational violent extremist group i mean this is um Canada is not immune to this they're they're all across Canada i believe uh from the west coast all the way out to the east coast and uh yeah.
2: So I want to get into that a little bit more. Uh, hopefully you have time to stay for the second segment um, to, to get, to get into sort of what, what is involved in the indoctrination process and and what are we looking out for as Canadians? We feel we're immune and clearly we're not the proud boys born here. Um, so we need to talk about that. But, but for the sake of this subject of the Donald Trump stand back, stand by uh, in front of 73 million viewers during the debate this past week, um, what was the call to action? Would Would you know what he was saying with regard to obviously is like, you know, fight back the rioters, their Antifa at any protest. I mean, I heard that bit. But when he was talking more specifically about the election possibly being rigged or guarding the polls or what, what, what was the whistle there?
5: I mean those types of things are are I mean taken taken by these groups Wh- whatever his intention was I'm I'm not exactly sure what those words what his intentions were but I know what how the groups would would digest that information
2: so Yeah that's what I'm looking look, for.
5: Yeah they they would look at that and say okay well um clearly there's something going on here we have to help out cuz you know we've been given a shout out here um but also they I mean they they go along with, uh, you know, whatever the, this common narrative is. And the common theme right now is that there's a conspiracy from the left to, to, you know, um, mess with the U S election. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, they, they believe that they need to protect, protect these, um, in quotations, uh, um, you know, American values, traditional American values, right. And, uh, whatever those look like, but in, in their, in, in, in their sense, that is, you know, Uh, Protect freedom, uh, you know, definitely uh, Second Amendment rights, all that kind of stuff. Um, And and shout outs have been given on that level, too, from from the top, you know, from the president as well. Right. So it's it's Mm -hmm. been it's been very challenging to try to discover what we need to do to change the change the narrative here right
2: when you have somebody come to your face and say you know there's no such thing as white privilege and that feminism is garbage or whatever the mantras are of the likes of the proud boys when when we're faced with that is there a way to diffuse it is there a way that we can react to it that doesn't escalate it
5: yeah i think um well that's that's a good question first of all i mean it's um, I think a lot of it is about not being reactionary, and I think some of the work that um, that's being done right now, um, in and around where, uh, definitely, in, with my colleagues and, and where I'm at, with uh, countering violent extremism, and and also with um, life after hate, in in that of helping other people leave uh, these types of movements. So having and, and there's many, many other organizations that have been popping up across Canada and across the United States that are there. To, to directly service people who have found themselves wrapped up into these uh, these different narratives or these different groups right um, mm-hmm. and that ranges that ranges from people who were just feel like they might have been viewing too much stuff online um, and and you know we always think about that family member that might have got wrapped up in a little bit of this right um, yeah. th- these things didn't exist before where it was like proper intervention ways of intervention that we could t- how to talk to people about this right so I mean I think it's I think it's starts with empathy. I think it's about saying, hey, you know, like, I understand you have some grievances. I understand you have some, uh, some, you know, ideas about the woes of the world, but let's, you know, we're willing to have a dialogue, right? We're willing to have a conversation. So getting that conversation started, um, I mean, and yeah, when people are, are actually wrapped up in it, I mean, is it our, is it our responsibility as Canadians uh, to to say, hey, you know, like uh, perhaps you're wrapped up in something that's, that's, uh, you know, pretty intense there. And, and, it, you know, there is help for that now. And we, we, we know that uh, there are organizations across Canada that are providing um, uh, these, you know, these types of things. Um, and I think we can do better with education too. I mean, we, in our, in our field, we call it primary prevention. So, you know, getting into, into schools, getting into different, uh, places where we can talk about these things and, and Mm -hmm. breach into this idea of trying to, um, have these discussions before people uh, go off to join these, these types of groups, right? Because the the end game is, is that, uh, the the negativity associated with all of these groups is is obvious and violence, all this, all this type of thing. We want to make sure that we're, uh, doing, doing our best to, to prevent, uh, people from becoming involved in these types of movements, right?
2: Yeah, and this isn't the first time that you and I have uh, had the opportunity to speak with one another, and I always appreciate your perspective because you have walked the walk and you've lived it. And the and the lesson that I take away every time as the mother of a tween right now, tween boys just off to high school. You know, I keep my eyes out for the things that you've taught me about. Look and see, you know, who he's hanging out with, who does he feel like he needs the connection to. He's lucky enough to have a a loving home. But even kids in loving homes are looking to fill some void somehow, some way, and often find that within some sort of gang, whether it's a brotherhood, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a different level that sometimes is a is a is unavoidable in any family setting. You think, oh my gosh, my our family is so loving. How how on earth did my son become a fill in the blank uh, member? And yet, mm. it's pretty it's pretty innocent and clear at the get go. And then once you're too deep in, oftentimes you feel like you can't get out.
5: Yeah, and that's I mean, those are the things it, you've hit it on many levels there. But the sense of belonging and the brotherhood and all this type of thing. So those things are are. Often falsehoods. Once you get inside of these groups, that that, that those things disintegrate uh, fairly quickly, um, mm-hmm. and and you know that's that's why we see uh, so many different types of groups emerging. Uh, that's one of the reasons, at least in, in my in, in my opinion, that we'll you know see guys will join one type of group and then other groups pop up because. Um, often they implode on, on themselves. Like a lot of, you know, your typical street gang, it's, it's the same idea. Like that's why we see the violence or that's why we see things disconnecting like that. Right. So Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we do want to be there and we want to be set with tools uh, to, to be able to speak with our, our young people, whether they're our children or or, no even coworkers, family members, and what have you. Right. Because it's this, this movement doesn't have an age anymore. Um, I I would argue right now there's the age is like increasing it's going going up like it used to be that young people were the were the you know target but yeah Yeah. it's it's um, uh, you know unfortunately there's there's some you know uh, at least an uptick in in older people joining these types of movements right now so we've got to be there for for them as well right so there's to have there's that lot. conversation
2: yeah to yeah, say absolutely. to say i understand why you're feeling threatened i understand why you might feel marginalized or angry mm-hmm. here to to be able to use those words even when in your mind you're thinking how on earth are you you know what are you doing mm-hmm. is what you want to say but but that's not going to get us anywhere trying to find that center line to, to mm-hmm. open up the dialogue and maybe see where the weaknesses are or not even the weaknesses where the vulnerabilities are that are that are being hidden behind that that I don't know mm-hmm. the, the, the the group, the the shield, I guess. It's really quite, so have you ever, I've only got a minute here left, Brad, but I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, have you ever seen a time, has there ever been a moment in time where, you know, there were, there are no hoods, there are no cloaks, it's not underground, it's out in the open, it's it's in mm-hmm. your face right now.
1: Yeah,
5: yeah, and that's, I mean, that is what it is, and it's, you know, it's so much online, and it's so in your face and in the, in the public, right, so we have to mm-hmm. think about how do we create less fear and bring ourselves together so that we're not doing this divided Uh, you know this is this is definitely a collective effort from society and i think we we can do this but remember that the percentage of people involved in these groups is way way less than the rest of society so we want to make sure that we're thinking like that too right that we have this we can we can do this right so i want i i want i always like to bring a message of hope uh to to the table too right so uh, I don't believe you that have. we're doomed, but I also believe that we we can do this so long as we do Wait. it as a as a you know co- cohesive society, right?
2: As a collective, Brad Galloway, as always, thank you so much.
5: Yeah, thanks for having me, on.
2: Brad Galloway. Uh, you can find out more Center on Hate Bias and Extremism. Uh, he's a case manager at Life After Hate as well.